As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, open it up with me to Luke chapter 19. Uh, We're going to be in verses 41 through 48 today. Now, the last time when we left Jesus, he was riding down the slopes, the western slopes of the Mount of Olives, and he was coming up on the ancient city of Jerusalem, and he was riding on a donkey. And as he was nearing Jerusalem, a makeshift triumph broke out. Now, you've probably seen uh, those ancient Roman movies when the conquering general or the emperor comes to town. There, people line the streets and they welcome them in as the victor, and they call that a triumph. And so that's what they did for Jesus. They welcomed him as the Messiah, as the new Jewish king coming into Jerusalem, and a big party broke out. And then Jesus had an unexpected reaction to the celebration. Look with me in verse 41 of chapter 19. The Bible says that as he approached and saw the city, he wept over it. So picture the scene. Here's Jesus riding up to the city in the midst of this celebration, in the midst of this party, and in the midst of all this joy, Jesus starts crying. Not just a sniff, sniff, wipe away a tear kind of cry. But whenever you dive down into the wording here, it is a, it is a guttural, deep, all-out cry. Now you ask yourself this question, why was Jesus crying? Well, I think to some extent he was crying because he was looking back at the history of Jerusalem. And he remembered how Moses, the great liberator, had been raised up by God to take them out of Egyptian slavery. And he remembered the conquest to the promised land and how Joshua led them to establish the nation and to uh, settle there in the promised land. And the great kingdoms of David and Solomon, the glory years of the Jewish empire. And then when things began to fall apart and struggle. You had the prophetic years where the prophets would say, you need to turn back to God, and if you do not, this is what's going to happen. And so as Jesus was nearing Jerusalem, I think he looked back and he remembered all that led up to this point. And then I think he looked around, and he saw a lot of excited people, a lot of people who were saying the right things and doing the right things, and they were wanting Jesus to do something for them. But they were looking to earthly solutions when in reality their problem was a spiritual problem. And so I think he looked around and it caused him to grieve. And then I think he looked forward and he began to realize that one day soon, everything that he saw, this entire city, was going to come crushing down and crashing down. And so Jesus says in verse 42, if you knew this day... What would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you on in on every side. And they will crush you and your children within, within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So fast forward the clock. It's about 40 years after the scene that we just looked at. In 70 A.D., verse 43 happens. The Roman army marches on Jerusalem. They besiege the city. 
After a long, drawn-out siege, a terrible bloodbath occurs. 600,000, approximately 600,000 Jewish people were killed. Thousands more were sold into slavery. The temple was desecrated. It was burned, and much of the city was burned as well. And so Jesus knew that the party that he was experiencing as he entered Jerusalem was temporary, that soon it was all going to come crashing down. And verse 44 tells us why why this occurred. Verse 44 basically says, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In other words, the Son of God was right in your midst. God was speaking, God was doing His work, and you missed it. You didn't see it. It was hidden from you, and you didn't, have, you didn't notice God right in front of you. You missed it. Have you ever noticed how often life comes down to these moments in time where if you go one way, this happens, and if you go another way, something entirely different happens? I remember the first time I called my wife, Stacy. Some of her friends had slipped me her phone number and suggested that I give her a call. And so I had that moment, I I got the phone out, it was the 90s, you know, (laughs) I got the phone out and I had her number, as back back in those days students we wrote it on paper, and so I had the phone number on the piece of paper and the phone in my hand, and I was thinking, do I call, do I not call, do I call, and eventually, you know, I dialed the numbers and, and the rest is history, we've been married 20 years, but it's one of those moments in time where go this way, this happens, go this way. We may never have gone out. We may never have cultivated the relationship. I remember the first time that I ever uh, set foot on this church's campus. I, I was living in Grayson County at the time, doing mission work up there, and I got an email from a guy by the name of Gary Castleberry who said they wanted to talk to me about being the pastor here. And so Stacy and I, we drove down, and it was a Sunday afternoon, and we decided Let's just scope out the building and the campus. And so we were driving around looking at everything and drove back through the back parking lot. And Awana was dismissing at that time. I remember I was like ducking down, hoping nobody noticed me or anything like that because we were doing this covert spying operation on the church. But that was, that was the one moment in time. Uh, based on what we saw and what we felt at that moment, we, we decided to go forward. And I'm glad we did. Glad we did. But you know, those moments in time where if you go this way, this happens, and if you go this way, something entirely different happens. Life often boils down to that. And there's times where God speaks to you, times where God is trying to get your attention, and either you listen to Him or you don't. And if you listen to Him, spiritual growth occurs. If you push away from Him, you find yourself running the exact opposite direction. And I have to ask you this morning, are you missing the visit from God? As God moved into your life, taken up residence, put on his tool belt. Is he visiting you? Is God speaking to you in some way? Maybe it's your marriage, your family, your career, your finances, whatever it might be. Is God visiting you in some way and directing you in a certain direction? And are you going to miss the visit? Are you going to follow him? Sometimes non-Christians will accuse Christians of being anti-fun. We're just anti-fun. They'll say, you know, you Christians, you're just against everything. You have these 
beliefs and you're not flexible in your beliefs because you you believe they come from the Lord. And so you have these beliefs about life and its meaning and you have beliefs about what marriage is and what it isn't and how uh, the proper way is to express ourselves sexually or within family or you have these beliefs about what society should be. And sometimes they have these views of Christians that we should react to them or we're going to react to them with anger. And sometimes Christians do just that. When people disagree with us or they act in ways that we don't like, sometimes Christians are just angry. And I encourage you not to be the angry Christian. Just always spilling out on social media or wherever you are, just always angry and and never willing to forgive. The unexpected reaction, though, is compassion. When we see people that are running from God, whenever we see people that are going the opposite direction of God, we need to understand that they are running to deep spiritual and emotional pain. The reason why there are truths in the Scripture, the reason why God says do this and don't do this is because when you, when you disobey God's truths, it ultimately leads to pain. It doesn't lead to the life abundant. And so I think Jesus wept because He knew that the people were, were chasing after the wrong things. And in the end, it was going to lead to a lot of pain. A friend of mine had a good tweet on Twitter today. Both he and I have a common friend who, who uh, has had a very tough time. He made some bad decisions, and it's probably going to cost him his ministry. And so this was his tweet. I, I thought this was well written. He said, Biblical attitudes commended to us when someone falls. Mourning, gentleness, introspection, and caution. When these do not naturally come to me, I know my heart is not right. You see, when someone stumbles, when someone starts doing something that they shouldn't, when someone uh, finds themselves paying the consequences of sin... What should our reaction be as Christians? It should lead us to mourning, gentleness, introspection, caution. And when that's not our natural reaction, we need to inspect our heart and make sure that we truly are walking with the Spirit. Well, that night, Jesus leaves Jerusalem. He goes to this little village of Bethany, and there He stays with some of His friends. And then the next morning, He comes back down the hill, goes back into Jerusalem, and He enters the temple. And when he enters the temple, this is what happens in verse 45. He enters the temple complex, and he began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So here we have another unexpected reaction. The day before, in the midst of a party, Jesus had wept over Jerusalem. Now he comes into the temple, and he's angry. Angry to the point that he starts throwing people out of church. Could you imagine if Paul Reed walked in today? A nice Paul Reed over here. And he just got red-faced and said, Okay, Walker, you're out of here. And he just started throwing people out of the church. I mean, it would be quite a commotion if that occurred in the middle of church. So, a couple questions here, all right? First question. Is anger sin? Is it a sin to be angry? And if so, did Jesus sin here? The answer is, 
No, first of all, Jesus didn't sin. And also, anger is not in and of itself a sin. Anger is a human emotion. We all, from time to time, experience anger. But you have to be careful with anger because anger can lead you to do some things that are very sinful. And if anger goes unresolved within your heart and you allow it to stew and you allow it to uh, uh, take up residence in your heart and to sit in the lazy boy of your soul and to watch the TV of your heart, then eventually anger becomes bitterness within you and you just become an angry person. Ephesians 4.26 is one that we should note. It says, in your anger, do not sin. There's going to be times that you may lose your temper, but in your anger, do not sin. And then there are also times where it's natural for us to get a little bit angry. There's a good theological term here for you today. It's called righteous indignation. Let's say that on the count of three, a one and a two and a three. Righteous indignation. What is righteous indignation? Righteous indignation is whenever you get angry because somebody is doing something that is sinful and it is just flat out wrong. For example, I get angry. I have righteous indignation whenever I think of women and children that are living in abusive situations. I think of little boys like My father, who, when he was a little guy, he would lay in bed at night and dread his daddy coming home because his dad would often come home drunk and pull him out of bed and spank him for no reason whatsoever. That makes me angry. I I have righteous indignation whenever I think of people that exploit or take advantage of those who are weaker in some way than they are. And so there's times where we see injustice and we see people treating others in a way that just should not be when we see darkness in this world and it fills us with a sense of righteous indignation. So why did Jesus get so angry in the temple? Now, if you know anything about the ancient temple, it was a magnificent structure, one of the great architectural wonders of its time, and it was divided into these courts. Now, what you have to imagine is that the further you got in, in the courts, each one had progressively closed access. Almost like going to one of these stadiums today. You know, you have the cheap seats where we all sit, and then you have the more expensive seats, and then eventually you get to the luxury boxes, and we've only dreamed of those, you know, those kind of thing. But the temple, I guess a bad illustration really, but the temple had a progressively closed access. And the outer court here where this scene is unfolding is called the Gentile court. Now make sure you catch this. This is a common passage of scripture people talk about a lot, but I hear they miss this part over and over again. The Gentile court was supposed to be the missionary engine for the temple. It was supposed to be the place where anybody could come and worship. It didn't matter what race you were, what gender you were, how old, how young, how rich, how poor. You could come to the Gentile court, and there you were free to learn about God. They encouraged you to, they were supposed to at least, encourage you to ask questions, to learn the scriptures, to pray, to sing, to worship, to learn to serve others. 
the Gentile court was supposed to be the missionary engine of the temple. And yet it had degenerated into what they called the bazaars of Annas. It was basically just a bunch of uh, booths that were set up. It was a, a festy party type atmosphere in the Gentile courts. Now this was the Passover season. And so during the Passover season, people would come from all over the world to Jerusalem. And they would bring their animals that they were going to offer as a sacrifice. Now, it was a hassle to bring your own animals. You had to keep up with these doves, or you had to keep up with this sheep, and you had to uh, travel oftentimes by foot. And so uh, to carry your animals to the temple was just a pain. And then once you got there, the priest had to approve your animal. And so imagine you've carried these doves all the way from Bethlehem and you finally arrive at the temple and the priest says, no, that one won't do. And so then you you have to carry these doves around for the rest of the week. So this was a problem. So they had a committee meeting and uh, the businessmen came up with an idea, right? So here was the idea is that they would would sell people pre-approved animals, but they would also exchange their money because there was... The finance team had an issue, and they could only buy these animals with the Jewish money. So they would would convert these people's money into Jewish money, and then they could buy these pre-approved animals. And they had a PowerPoint presentation, business meeting. Everybody voted in favor. It was a great idea. I'm kidding about that that PowerPoint part. But uh, uh, anyway, it was a great idea. In theory, it made sense. It was convenience. Okay, so why then did Jesus get so upset. Three reasons. Number one, the money changers had become corrupt. Most of the people that were coming to the temple were poor and uneducated. They didn't have the Wailing Wall Street Journal to tell them what the currency exchange rate was. They didn't know what their money was worth. They would go there and then the the temple money exchangers would rob them. They would give them less than they received, and then they would keep the difference. So they were being thieves. Secondly, the animals that were being sold for sacrifice were being sold at ridiculous prices. How does it make you feel when you go to Jerry World and you go to the concession stand and you want a Coke and it's $5 for the small or $7.50 for the medium or $10 if you want the 64-ounce? And then you get a popcorn, and it's like five bucks. And so you've spent like $15 for a Coke and a popcorn. How does that make you feel? You're like, great, I have a Coke and a popcorn. I'm good. Yeah. I always feel robbed by it, right? But, uh, but you're stuck. There's nowhere else to get food, so you're like, okay, I, I've, I, I have to do this. Well, that was what was happening to the people. They were being robbed. They were being charged uh, prices that they shouldn't be charged. And then thirdly, and this was the big thing, There was no worship going on. This was supposed to be a place of worship. It was supposed to be a place where everybody was welcomed. And instead, it was just a party. Now, Passover was a lot of fun. You know, the highlight of Passover was a big meal. This huge meal. It was a celebration of freedom. During the Passover week, They would see family and friends. It was kind of like Christmas is to us. They would see people that they didn't get to see very often. These were hardworking people. During Passover week, they didn't have to work. 
It was a happy time. Had a lot of laughter. And there is nothing wrong with Christians having fun. Nothing wrong with laughing. But it was also supposed to be a sacred time. You came to the temple. You prayed. You sang. You gave your offerings to the Lord. You humbled yourself. You worshiped God. It was supposed to be a deeply meaningful time. And it was also supposed to be a time where you would bring people who were far away from God to the temple with you so that they might meet God and they might know of His truth. And the Gentile court was supposed to be a place where people could worship, ask questions, and learn. But instead of hearing prayers, they heard a sales pitch. Instead of seeing worship, they saw corruption. And I believe it pushed them even further from God. What a shame it is whenever people come to church, but instead of hearing prayers, they hear a sales pitch. Instead of hearing a message that's from the Word of God, they hear a self-help talk with a twist of Scripture. Instead of seeing worship, they see corruption and they experience hypocrisy. When this happened in the temple, it angered the heart of the Son of God to the point of action. He threw out the money changers. Now hear me well on this. Again, it's okay for you to have fun in church. Jesus doesn't get mad at you because you laugh. You don't have to be the scowling Christian. Yeah, It's okay to have fun. It's okay to laugh. It's also okay to sell pumpkins. I know a lot of you are worried about this, okay? Every year, those who don't know, every year we have a pumpkin patch. And kind of, some folks know us as the pumpkin church because of it. But it's okay to sell pumpkins and raise money for kids to go to camp. Jesus isn't hating here on pumpkin patch, okay? It's not okay, though. It's not okay to take advantage of people. It's not okay to take advantage of people that are smaller than you or weaker than you or in some way not as mature in the faith. It's not okay to twist Scripture and lead people down a path that leads them, to, leads them away from God. And it's never okay to turn the house of worship into a house of thieves. It's never okay to use church as a guise for our corruption and our corrupt business practices. Like Jesus, we should weep. When we think of the future of family and friends and neighbors who are living life grasping for answers that will never satisfy, it should break our hearts because we know this. We know that the end game of a life lived apart from God is pain. Not just temporary pain, but eternal pain. And so we have, to be, we have to be mindful of this. The most powerful witness of the church is the authenticity of our worship. Now, I'm not one of those guys that I don't... I make it a point not to criticize other pastors. I don't want to be one of those guys that, you know, there just becomes this increasingly narrow circle of, okay, you're okay, and all these other people are not. Uh, there's people that uh, 
worship differently than we do, pastors that teach differently than I do. I'm not going to be the guy that uh, criticizes them or tries to tear them down or point out everything wrong that they said. That's just not, not my style. But you do have to have some discernment. It's important that in Christianity 2018 that you have a discerning spirit because you need to realize that not everything that is packaged as Christian, not everything that has the Christian wrapper around it is genuinely Christian. Sometimes it has Jesus-like tendencies, but what's inside is not real. And if you don't find that what is being taught comes from Scripture, and if you don't find that what is being taught leads you to the gospel, a gospel of grace that saves a sinner like you and me and changes us from the inside out rather than just simply through behavior modification, if you don't find that, then you might be led to a false gospel. And in the end, though it might look good, sound good, feel good, it will ultimately lead you to a crash and it will lead you to pain. I, I pray deeply in my soul that when people come through these doors, they will find something unexpected. They'll find real people. Real people that have stories just like them. People that sometimes struggle in our marriages. People that sometimes fail in our parenting, people that sometimes do things that we shouldn't do, people that are still growing and maturing, the people that are in this thing called church together, people that love one another and love God, real people who are really worshiping with a genuineness, a real God. I pray that as a church we begin expecting the unexpected. Sometimes it's... um, it's easy to get stuck in a rut. You know, you come in, all right, it's Sunday morning, go to church, go get my coffee. They moved the coffee pot. What's up with that? Okay, went to life group, survived that, stayed awake. <laughs> Time for worship. They moved church. What's up with that? Come over here. Now I got to find a whole new seat. Ugh. Man, what's going on here? You know, and so you kind of change the routine, and it's not what you expect. And sometimes we kind of just get stuck in a rut. And in the process of that, we quit expecting God to do the unexpected. Have you ever thought about how special this really is? We represent a segment of the people of God in this community. We come from different homes, we have different stories, we have different gifts, we have different backgrounds, but we are united together by the most powerful force on earth, the power of Almighty God. We are all testimonies to His grace who have gathered here this morning to worship His name. Just the fact that we are free to do that is unique. And we come in here into this room, and what is it that we are expecting Are we just expecting a few songs and then a lesson and then an offering and some prayers and then we go home? Or do we come into the room expecting to be in the presence of Almighty God? Expecting to be with other Christians who are singing praises to Him. Not just songs, but the songs of our soul. Songs of worship to Him. 
Do we have an expectation that we all come together and there is a commonality of suffering because it's a common denominator of humankind that we all experience pain? And so whenever we bow our heads before God and we pray and we pray for those that are hurting, we pray for those that are healing, we pray for those that may be a long way from God and we pray for those that are grieving, that we are doing this as a collective body because we're in this together and we're walking through this journey that we call life together. I'm so thankful for this church. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that we're in this together. And whenever we pray, we're praying for one another. And one day it'll be my turn. One day it'll be me who's grieving. One day it'll be me who's praying for healing. And I need you to be praying for me. Do you realize that whenever we take an offering and we give our our resources so that the kingdom of God might continue to expand, how special it is to be a part of that. And when we open the word of God and we see sacred truth from from our heavenly Father, Sometimes the Spirit of God takes that truth and it jumps off the page and it nestles itself deeply within our heart and it changes us. You ever experienced that? You know, sometimes I read the Word of God and it encourages me. Sometimes I read the Word of God and it stinks because it shows me areas where I still need to change. And week after week, we gather and we open the Scriptures and we let God stretch us and challenge us, encourage us and and change us. And the great testimony to our worship is that we're changing. That's the real mark of genuine worship. Are you changing to reflect the image of Christ? You see, genuine worship changes our marriages, our families, our communities. Genuine worship challenges us not to stay the same. And genuine worship will cause us to stand in the presence of a God who brings about the unexpected. It causes us to drop our jaw in amazement and say, this is God. Genuine worship leads us to expect the unexpected. I sure hope you don't miss the visit of God. Hope you don't miss it when God visits you and speaks to you. And shares with you truth. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? The band's going to come and they're going to lead us in worship. I'll be here at the front. I'll be here after the service as well. If there's anything that I may pray with you about, encourage you in, it's always my joy to be a pastor to you. It could even be that today is the day that. Christ is really calling you to place your faith in Him and trust Him as Savior and Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this church, and I thank You that within this church are some of the most gracious, loving, kind people that I have ever met. I thank You, Father, for the spirit that we enjoy. But I pray, Father, that we will not become complacent and just expect what's expected. Instead, Lord, may we expect to hear from you. May we expect to be challenged by you. May we expect to live lives that demand of us faith. May we expect to see people come to know you as Lord and Savior. I pray, Father, that we might have a testimony that flows from a spirit and a heart of authenticity 
Father, help us not to sell something that looks like the gospel, but inwardly is lacking. But help us to be fully devoted to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to sharing the message of the gospel with all people so that all may know that salvation has been brought near, that it is available, and that there is hope, hope beyond tomorrow, hope that lasts forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray, in Jesus' name we worship, amen.